Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome you this evening to the proceedings of the Aristotelian Society. Um, some of you are slightly anxious because you didn't get a handout. Sorry about that, but there are some more in production and they'll, they'll be brought into the room soon, so we'll try to distribute them discreetly uh, in a moment. So I'm particularly pleased to be able to welcome Professor Ray Langton, who's the Knightbridge Professor of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge, uh, formerly Professor of Philosophy, uh, Philosophy at Edinburgh and at MIT. Uh, Ray is really unusual among philosophers today. Uh, you know, most of us are happy if we work in one area. Uh, we feel we're very adventurous if we work in two. Uh, Ray has published path-breaking work in... I have to read this off a list now. Kant, political philosophy, feminist theory, philosophy of law, philosophy of language, ethics, history of philosophy, and no doubt many other fields as well. So would you please uh, join me in, well, well, don't join me yet in thanking her, uh, but, but uh, welcome Ray to deliver her talk, Empathy and First Personal Imagining. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's really terrific to be here. Um, the last time I was here at the Moral, uh, at the Moral Sciences Club, there we go, there was a bias. The last time I was here at the uh, Aristotelian Society, uh, you still had the tradition of going to dinner first. And I remember that was an unfortunate tradition because David Wiggins uh, plied me with wine and I was, I won't say I was the worst for wear, but, um, well, I did just say it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I um, am really uh, pleased to be talking about uh, this topic, but I have to warn you that um, there is a slight contradiction between the version that I published and the version on the handout. Um, I'll see if anyone will spot it. Um, so um, empathy can mean many things, and Adam Smith's description is a terrific starting point. If our brother is upon the rack, he says, it is by the imagination only that we can form any conception of what are his sensations. Neither can that faculty help us to, the, um, to this any other way than by representing to us what would be our own if we were in his case. By the imagination, we place ourselves in his situation. We conceive ourselves enduring all the same torments. We enter, as it were, into his body and become in some measure the same person with him and thence form some idea of his sensations, and even feel something which, though weaker in degree, is not altogether unlike them. His agonies, when they are thus brought home to ourselves, when we have thus adopted and made them our own, begin at last to affect us, and we then tremble and shudder at the thought of what he feels. That's a stunning description, and there's a, a lot going on there. I'm only going to talk about some of what's going on there. Um, and my question is, you know, in what sense is empathy uh, so described? By the way, he called, he called this sympathy, but I'm joining most commentators in calling this empathy. Um, in what sense is it first personal? So Smith is describing a distinctive imagining which has several features which deserve the name first personal. There's a vivid phenomenology, a quasi-perceptual acquaintance with my brother's suffering. What makes it first personal in this sense is that its content is from the inside. My brother feels that feeling which I grasp in this qualitative way only from a first personal viewpoint. From the inside, I think that phrase comes from uh, uh, Wolheim and uh, Wendler. To some degree, 
This enables me to imagine not only that he's suffering, but what his suffering is like. That's one aspect of the first personal. Another involves an imaginary self-projection. So I'm just going through. You should be able to follow easily enough on the handout. Um, I'm now at the second meaning of first personal. Another involves this self-projection, where we place ourselves in his situation, so that in imagination, his situation is somehow my situation. What makes it first personal in this sense is the location of the indexical I, shifted somehow into my brother's situation. In imagination, I self-ascribe the properties of being over there in agony on the rack, and this makes it what some philosophers have called a day say imagining. Uh, to some degree, it enables me to imagine what I would feel if I were in his place. I'll, I'll say a bit more about day say imagining in just a minute. A third aspect involves something stronger, an imaginary identification, when I not only enter, as it were, into his body, but become in some measure the same person with him, uh, to use his uh, language. What makes it first personal in this third sense is again the location of the indexical I, but this time shifted somehow into my brother himself, not only his situation. I identify with my brother so that in imagination I become in some measure the same person as him. This self-ascription makes it a case of imagining de se, but what is self-ascribed is something more. And to some degree, this enables me to imagine what I would feel if I were he. And uh, we find in another quotation um, that uh, this is what he meant all along. So just to orient you to the handout, this is the typical Langton handout. Structure on the first uh, two pages, quotations, and then readings, anyway. Um, so um, we, I had the quotation from Adam Smith there, if you want to go back uh, to it. And there's one where he says, it was never supposed to be just in his situation. I consider what I should suffer if I was really you. Not only change circumstances. So it's quite curious that he doesn't comment on the oddity of I were really you. And that's one of the things I want to think about in a minute. So, our initial reflection suggests that empathy is first personal because empathic imagining has a phenomenological from the inside aspect and an indexical day say aspect. Now, as I am discovering, there is a very large literature on empathy in ethics and in aesthetics and in philosophy of mind. And I would not be so foolish as to deny other conceptions of empathy and other aspects to it. But I want to focus on these two aspects, the shift in phenomenology as I take a from the inside viewpoint, grasping in a vivid and qualitative way something about what it's like for my brother. Um, and it involves a, a shift in self-location, the indexical I shifting into my brother's situation or perhaps into my brother himself in imagination, if we can make sense of that. So. Um, our first question then is, what is first personal about empathy? Here's another question. What can empathy tell us about the first personal? Um, in his uh, influential work on Attitudes de Say, David Lewis draws our attention to distinctive first personal knowledge that does not fit into ordinary third personal knowledge of the world. At one point, he teasingly agrees with condescending or mis mysterious philosophers who say, and now I'm quoting Lewis, 
So there's the quotes from Lewis uh, at the back there too. Um, there is a kind of personal, subjective knowledge that we have or we seek, and it is altogether different from the impersonal, objective knowledge that science and scholarship can provide. So he's, he's saying these words rather tongue-in-cheek, because he uh, doesn't really think there is any such uh, mysterious uh, knowledge. He says he agrees with these taunts, at least he agrees with them, in letter, if not in spirit. So, um, and what's missing in the impersonal objective knowledge is indexical self-location, or knowledge de se, as he puts it. So we're going to be talking about imagination de se. He was talking about belief or knowledge uh, de se. So a comprehensive grasp of the world which omits knowledge of where I am is like a map without a you are here sign, says Lewis. Um, and he goes on to argue that they say knowledge can be understood as the self-ascription of a property and that this can do far more work than anyone envisaged. And in fact, there's a whole big theme to that paper, which is about how all our knowledge can be converted into uh, they say knowledge. I'm not looking at uh, that part. I'm looking at the part uh, of his view where he's talking about irreducibly they say knowledge. Um, now, there's a very large literature also on the de se, um, and I'm not going to be so foolish as to deny other uh, conceptions of it and other aspects, but I'm not alone, I expect, in speculating that work on the de se is missing something important, um, and I think that attending to empathy can help us see this. Uh, my hunch is that Lewis is getting only the letter and not the spirit of the personal and subjective because he is offering us the, um, indexical, the indexical self ascription that we have with de se attitudes, and that is very different to the phenomenological from the inside viewpoint uh, that we got in, um, in Adam Smith's uh, quotation. So the, the vivid phenomenology, that's, that's got nothing to do, I think, with the de se. Um, so um, part of what I want to do today is say, um, uh, you need to get the spirit. Get it? Get the spirit. Okay. Um, Smith is describing an imaginative feat which can yield knowledge of other minds, shared fellow feeling, and moral concern for others. And people argue about whether it's the knowledge or the fellow feeling or the moral concern which belongs to the core of empathy. Um, I'm just going to take the epistemic role to be primary. I'm not going to... Um, argue for this more, um, but I'm uh, following um, Derek Matravers in his lovely book on empathy. He says, at a first pass, empathy involves using our imagination to adopt a different perspective to grasp how things appear or feel from there. Um, I'm not going to very much use the word perspective. Um, I've got a, I, because perspective can mean lots of different things, um, um, but I won't go into why here. So in the first instance, empathy is a kind of mind reading. And I'm not going to assume that when you are empathic, you are have a shared fellow feeling or moral concern for the target of your empathy. Um, so on this usage of empathy, you know, a skilled empathic mind reader um, could um, lack shared feeling or moral concern, and they might need to. So an empathic doctor might grasp a patient's anxiety without actually being anxious themselves, 
and a sadist might with relish grasp the exact contours of his victim's fear, and that would be uh, sticking with empathy in the sort of basic mind-reading sense, not the, uh, yes, I'm sharing your feeling, or I've got deep concern for you sense. Okay, so... That's not to say it isn't a significant moral resource. It's a really significant moral resource. So let me just say up front, there's a, um, em empathy is a moral resource as well as an epistemic resource. Uh, I'm going to get to the moral uh, part of it in a little while. Um, but of course, it's terribly limited and fallible. And the only thing I have so far published on empathy, as co-authored um, with Richard Holton, actually, and it's on empathy and animal ethics. And it's about how empathy doesn't get us anywhere near where we need to get to when it comes to animal ethics. because we, uh, And that just shows that we shouldn't equate the scope of empathy with um, the scope of ethics. Um, so um, it is nevertheless a moral resource. And part of my question is, what does the first personal and what does empathy need to be if it's to be a moral resource? Um, does it need to be first personal in the phenomenological sense, the from the inside sense? Does it need also to be uh, first personal in the de se, um, somehow self-ascription self sense? So that's where we're heading. Um, I'm going to neglect empathy as a topic in philosophy of mind, but I think it's completely fascinating. Um, um, I'm gesturing here to um, simulation theory, um, the idea that we use our own minds um, or aspects of our own minds sort of offline to model what's going on in other people. I was having a chat with Jane Heal about this um, earlier in the week. Um, I think it's really interesting. I just am not going to do it justice uh, today. Okay, so this was on the topic of first personal other imagining. So empathy involves uh, imagining what's going on with other people in a first personal way. But of course, a very familiar kind of um, first personal imagining is what we do just with ourselves. Um, so I'm now on that topic. So I'm now moving to section two, first personal self-imaginings. So the different notions of de se and from the inside were introduced by philosophers aiming to understand not empathy, but other first personal and self-involving attitudes that seemed at risk of getting left out. And empathy is going to turn out to be a special case. So you're going to have to indulge me in a little melodrama. Um, and the point of it is to illustrate first personal imagining of the de se and from the inside variety so that you can see uh, what they amount to and how they might come apart in different ways. Um, so here goes, six different imaginings um, and they are numbered both on the handout and in paper for your convenience. What they all have in common, and this is, I, I suppose, a spoiler alert, but anyway, what they all have in common is that the imaginer imagines something about the imaginer. So in that sense, they are all self-imaginings in some sense of that term, but they're not all first personal, as we will see. Okay, my chapter one of this melodrama uh, is just straight from uh, Zeno Wendler in his lovely paper on uh, vicarious um, imagining, vicarious experience, anyway. Um, Suppose, he says, that my friend and I are looking down on the ocean from a cliff. And now I'm quoting from him. This quotation's on the, uh, on the it's quotation two. Um, the water is rough and cold, yet there are some swimmers riding the waves. 
Just imagine swimming in that water. Here's my case one, says my friend, and I know what to do. Brr, I say, as I imagine the cold, the salty taste, the tug of the current, and so forth. Had he said, and this is case two, just imagine yourself swimming in that water, I could comply in another way too, by picturing myself being tossed about, a scrawny body bobbing up and down in the foamy waste. In this case, I do not have to leave the cliff in imagination. I may see myself, if I so choose, from the very same perspective. Not so in the previous case. If I indeed imagine being in the water, then I may see the cliff above me, but not myself from it. The rest of this paper, by the way, is, is partly an exercise in linguistics and how certain forms of language suggest um, um, certain kinds of imagining and experience. And so um, just imagine swimming uh, in that water requires a kind of from the, from the inside perspective, whereas just imagine yourself swimming in that water is open to a number of different um, interpretations. And I won't get into the linguistic argument that he's wanting to make, but it's actually jolly interesting. Okay. So, um, case one um, is first personal in two ways. It's uh, from the inside and they say. What I'm talking about by case one is I imagine swimming in that water. So, this is where you really need the handout because I've got six cases and they all look really similar uh, and they are all different. At least, if they're not different, it's controversial. Um, so um, you need to see a hand, see someone's handout to keep track of it if you haven't got one. So case one is imagine swimming in that water. That's what the friend instructs you. So that's from the inside and they say. I took my cue from uh, Wendler who, uh, who described uh, himself as scrawny. So I imagine being in the water, the cold, the salty taste, the tug of the current, my puny arms pulling feebly against the waves. Brr. So, and in imagination, I self-ascribe these properties. Self-ascribing a property, that's what it is to have a day-say attitude. So, um, I can't spend a lot of time on the Lewis, but here he is. Um, the second Lewis quotation, self-locating belief he's talking about here, is what I call belief irreducibly day-say, exemplified by, aha, I'm going to get to Lingons in a minute, exemplified by that which... Uh, Lingens, who is lost in the Stanford Library, can't get from books. I propose that any kind of self-locating belief should be understood as self-ascription of properties. So, um, I'm I, there's self-ascription of these properties in imagination, and there's all this vivid phenomenology. So it's from the inside in both ways. Case two, imagine sw yourself swimming in that water is from the outside, uh, and it's uh, de say. Uh, I picture myself below, a scrawny figure being tossed about. In imagination, I self-ascribe those properties. So who has those properties? I do. So I'm, I'm self-ascribing them. Um, so in this case, um, you see that the two kinds of per first personal are coming apart. My imagination, my imagining is first personal in one way, because it's a de say imagining, but it's not from the inside. Um, I think that's. I, I think it's um, nice to keep track of how these different um, kinds of first personal could come apart. Um, so that's case one and case two, and they came from um, Wendler. Now I'm going to continue the story in a way that doesn't steal from Wendler. It steals from Perry, and some of you will find uh, this familiar. Okay. 
did I need to mention? Aha. I should have said this when I was introducing the Deisei. Um, Deisei imagining on this way of thinking belongs to a wider genus of Deisei attitudes that were introduced to capture this, you know, you are here, um, except first personal rather than spatial uh, knowledge that Lewis was talking about. So these examples will be familiar to those who know this. The man in the reflections, pants are on fire. Oh, my pants are on fire. Um, some, sh some shopper has been leaking sugar everywhere. Oh, I have been looking, leaking sugar everywhere. Um, the, um, the first example is from Kaplan, and the second one's from Perry. Uh, in another story from John Perry, an amnesiac in Stanford Library has vast knowledge of Rudolf Lingens, acquired from a biography, but a discovery still awaits him. Oh, I am Lingens. So the point of... Um, I guess Perry and Lewis's work on this is that indexical de attitudes are irreducible to other attitudes, um, de dicto or de re. I'm not going to get into the details of de dicto, de, de re, um, at least not in my presentation. Um, that happen to be about yourself. Um, so when you ascribe them to your reflection in the mirror, even though that is you, um, that's not a de say um, self ascription. Um, so, um, we're looking at Deisei imagining. Uh, that's an attitude that Lewis left aside, saying it was ill understood, uh, but we are stepping in where angels fear to tread. Okay, so to continue the story then, my friend and I continue to gaze at the ocean from the cliff. He turns towards me. You know that book you were reading back there in the library about Rudolf Lingens, says my friend. Well, guess what? Lingens will be swimming down there in a little while. Imagine that. So, instruction, imagine that. Here come three, four, five, six, four more imaginings that are exemplifying, uh, uh, that are obeying that instruction. Case three. Just imagine Lingen swimming in that water. So I imagine Lingen swimming in that water. I picture him from the outside, far below, swimming with masterful strokes through the foamy waste. Masterful because he's the hero of this biography, so I'm making him a powerful swimmer. And I realize I can comply with my friend's instruction a different way. Case four. Just imagine Lingen swimming in that water. This time I imagine being in Lingen's situation. Remember um, Adam Smith's um, um, idea that you put yourself in the friend's uh, situation on the rack? I imagine being in Lingen's situation with his characteristics, swimming in that water. The cold, the salty taste, the tug of the current, my arms powerfully pulling against the waves. I feel admiration. That Lingen's, he's a braver man than me. And I feel pity, the cold, the tug of the current. Brr, I say, poor Lingen's. And then I wonder if I can comply with my friend's instruction in yet a different way. Case five. This is um, the last of um, Adam Smith's imaginings. Just imagine Lingen swimming in that water. This time I try to do something stronger. I imagine being Lingen's in that situation with his characteristics, swimming in that water. The cold, the salty taste, the tug of the current, my arms powerfully pulling against the waves. I feel admiration again. That Lingens, he's a braver man than me. I feel pity, the cold, the tug of the current. Brr, poor Lingens, I, I say to myself. And I wonder to myself, 
This case f five. I wonder to myself whether this feat of imagination is any different to the one I just performed before when I was just imagining being in Lingam's situation. So that's a question. Am I doing anything different when I'm imagining being in Lingam's situation um, with the cold, the tug of the current, and all that phenomenology? Um, as, as in the later case, when I imagine being Lingans in that situation, uh, the cold, the tug of the current, and all the rest of it. Um, do you remember that um, Adam Smith was saying, not just in the situation, but um, I, I uh, imagine that I am really you, uh, as he puts it. Um, then I turn to my friend and I ask, where is Lingans anyway? Right here, responds my friend. And I observe a new and strangely disturbing glint in his eye. I stare at him. The fog in my brain begins to lift. This friend, who so kindly accompanied me from the Stanford Library and invited me for a scenic ocean drive, might he be Leo Peter? No friend at all, but arch-rival and nemesis of Lingans. <gasps> and perhaps I am Lingans. So he's entertaining the possibility that he's Lingans. Just imagine Lingans swimming in that water. Now I can comply with the instruction a different way again. What if I am Lingans? And what if I will be swimming down there in a little while? I imagine being Lingans swimming in that water, in that situation, with his, that is my characteristics. The cold, the salty taste, the tug of the current, my puny arms pulling feebly against the waves. I feel terror. I know this feat of imagination is wholly different to the one I performed just a moment ago, even though in both cases I was imagining being Lingans. An evil chuckle from my friend is enough to banish the fog entirely. The scales fall completely from my eyes. The truth comes to me in its full horror. The friend who accompanied me from the library and drove me to this cliffside scene is indeed Leo Peter and I am Lingans. Oh no, I think I will be swimming down there in a little while. Imagine that. I find myself repeating with a new urgency my initial feats of imagination, this time in reverse order. Back to case two. I imagine myself swimming in that water. I picture myself far below being tossed about, a scrawny body bobbing up and down in the foamy waist. Ah, then case one, I imagine swimming in that water. Brr, I say, as I imagine the cold, the salty taste, the tug of the current, my puny arms pulling feebly against the waves. A brief thought occurs to me. If only I were Lingan, such a strong swimmer and a braver man than me. Oh, wait a minute, I am Lingans. I look back again at my friend friend, so-called, and see him reaching towards me, arms outstretched for the brutal shove that will send me over the brink and into the brine. One last split-second thought, poor me. <laughs> okay, so we went from poor lingers to poor me. Um, I want to think about those um, examples, um, and now I'm ad-libbing, so I don't, if anyone's f uh, following in the paper, you won't be able to follow, I'm going to follow my hand out now. So I discussed case one and two, which are just purely first personal um, imaginings. Imagine swimming in that water. Imagine yourself swimming in that water. That was the, Z the Zeno Wendler cases. Imagine Lingen swimming in that water. If that's from the outside. Um, I'm picturing him below swimming powerfully, etc. Um, and I don't, in imagination, self-ascribe these properties in any way. 
Um, I believe at that point that Lingens is someone else. Um, so um, it's from the outside, and it's not Dei Sei, because I'm ascribing them to Lingens, who is believed to be someone um, other than myself. Of course, and I'm just putting this in brackets because I'm not attending to this properly, I ascribe the properties to Lingens, who is in fact me, so I do in one sense ascribe them to myself, but that, depending on your view of reference um, and acquaintance, um, is ascribing them to myself de re. If you had a different view, it would be um, de dicto, but um, I won't get into whether it's, I, I'm going to take it that the names get straight through, um, so it's de re. So that was case three. Case four, uh, imagine Lingen swimming in that water. Now, this time what I'm doing, I'm imagining being in Lingen's situation, the cold, the salty taste, the tug of the current. In imagination, I self-ascribe the properties. And I, at the same time, believe Lingen's is someone else. I want to suggest that in this case, what we have is something very similar to our, to um, Adam Smith's first description. It's an imagining that is from the inside with vivid phenomenology, the cold, the salty taste, the tug of the current. Um, and it's uh, de se, because in imagination, I'm self-ascribing those properties. But of course, in a different uh, way, I'm ascribing them to Lingens, who is me. So there's a sense in which I'm ascribing them de re. That's a little complication, which we can just ignore for now. But the fact that this should remind you of what um, Adam Smith uh, described when I, uh, when I um, think of myself in my brother's situation on the rack, um, tells us that this is effectively empathy. So in other words, case four is a case of empathy, even though uh, the link, what I'm actually imagining is uh, something about someone who is in fact me. It's empathy because I am... Um, um, imagine, imagining being in the situation of someone who I take to be someone other than me, and I'm imagining that from the inside, and I'm self-ascribing those properties. Um, then, case five is just like the Adam Smith one again, except ramped up. So I'm imagining, remember he said, uh, imagine actually being my brother. So imagine this time I'm trying to imagine... Um, um, being Lingens in that situation. Oh, have I jumped ahead of myself? Case five. I imagine being Lingens in that situation, the cold, the salty taste, the tug of the current. I self-ascribe these properties. I believe Lingens is someone else. So this too is empathy. It's like Smith on entering my brother. Yes, to become in some measure the same person. So I said when I was reading out this, uh, this um, example that there is a question whether or not the imaginer is doing anything different in those two cases. Um, is it intelligible? Is it different to case four? Um, I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, I'm bracketing the, the fact that it's also day ray self-ascription. Case six, this is the final one you'll be relieved to hear, um, is where he's entertaining the possibility that our uh, he actually is himself Lingens. That's very different to um, Im imaginative identification with someone who you take to be someone else. Um, so imagine Lingens swimming in that water. What if I am Lingens? I imagine being Lingens in that situation, the cold, the salty taste, the tug of the current, my arms pulling feebly against the waves. Ah! 
from the inside, all that vivid phenomenology, and it's de se self-ascription. So in imagination, I'm self-ascribing these properties, but in a way that's wholly different to cases four and five. So part of what I'm interested in is trying to get to the bottom of why case six is different to case five. Um, case six is where I'm entertaining the possibility that I am Lingans. Uh, case five is, in a sense, uh, considering the possibility that I, of my being Lingans, but in a completely different way. So um, I have some thoughts about how to spell out that difference, but it's, it's another place where I welcome feedback um, from you. It's clear that these are completely different, um, and um, I'm wondering whether that difference is going to shed any light on empathy or whether it means that it wasn't in fact properly de se after all um, in the empathy style cases. Um, I should say there, for the record, um, that Francois Riccinati considers cases a bit like this and calls them sort of quasi-de-say and says they haven't quite, he doesn't consider empathy, but they have this structural feature and he thinks that it's not, doesn't quite fit the bill. Um, but I uh, uh, think it might. Okay, so what I've done um, um, is um, told a little melodrama uh, um, um, which spells out the difference between being first personal in the from the inside way and first personal in the day say way, shows how they come apart, shows how you can imagine being someone in two different ways. One of them involves something like empathy and one of them involves, you know, wondering where you, whether you are in fact that person. Um, and um, um, I'm interested in which of these, I mean, I'm interested in them actually, Frankly, I'm interested in them for their own sake. I think it's completely fascinating. Um, but I'm also interested in it from the point of view of ethics. What do we need imagination to be um, for the work that um, first-person imagining has to do in ethics? And you might think we don't need any first-person imagining in ethics. Um, but um, I, will, um, I think it's at least a help. I'm not going to be as ambitious as someone like R.M. Hare. Um, who thinks um, empathy has a, a, a massive, massive role in ethics. But um, empathy has, at the very least, when it's functioning properly, um, um, it's a resource for knowledge of others. It's fallible. Uh, it's subject to all kinds of pathologies. Uh, I'll say some more about the pathologies uh, in a bit. Um, it's also, it also, and this is part of Adam Smith's point, it's also hugely important to moral motivation. When you see sort of from the inside and when you, as it were, put yourself in the other person's shoes, that is motivating or can be motivating in a way that it wouldn't otherwise be. It doesn't have to be and we need the motivation without empathy, but at least can be a help. Now, the most ambitious, I said, was, is, was Hare. Hare um, basically exploits empathy to build a meta-ethics that is this magnificent synthesis of Kantian and utilitarian meta-ethics. But I'm, I'm not going to buy the whole story, but I still think Hare is fantastic um, on, um, um, on this topic, um, even if you don't buy his conclusions. So um, I have some quotations from Hare that are 6.6 .6 on the handout. Um, a certain power of imagination and a readiness to use it is a necessary ingredient in moral arguments. The difficulty of representing to ourselves absent states of experience, our own or other people's, is one of the main obstacles to good moral thinking. 
I have to know what it will be like for the other person. We have to keep carefully in mind the distinction between knowing that something's happening to someone and knowing what it's like for him. It's the latter which we should treat as relevant and as required for full information which rationality in making moral judgments demands. I mean, he's not the only one who says that imagination is important. Um, and in some ways, you know, both Bernard Williams and Michael Smith emphasize um, the role of imagination in moral reasoning. Uh, it's just that um, I haven't seen anyone sort of spell it out quite this way, uh, the way that Hare did it. Um, so notice the emphasis on the what it's like facts. Um, if we try to represent to ourselves what it's like to have a certain desire, we've not succeeded unless there's something in our present experience to correspond to what we're trying to represent. And this has to be a desire too. I'm not going to go that far, but I'm curious as to any, whether anyone thinks he's onto something there. We can utter the words, I shall be desiring not to be whipped. Maybe you're thinking of a horse being whipped. But we shall not really be thinking what it would be like unless there is a desire of equal intensity in our present experience, namely the desire not to be whipped if we are in that situation. Now, I just want to emphasize two things here. Um, in terms of his meta-ethics, we're not going to go there. What he's introducing is the idea of what he called, calls actual for possible desires. So when you um, represent vividly enough um, the mental states of this other being, perhaps a horse that's being whipped, um, um, you haven't represented them sufficiently vividly unless you yourself acquire a desire for you not... Uh, being treated that way if you were in that situation. I think it's a very interesting thought. Um, and um, what I uh, want to suggest is that, and I, w I won't read his final quote, but it's got the same message. Um, he is emphasi emphasizing both of these things. You need to have imaginative acquaintance with somehow with the what it's like facts, and you need to have, um, and you need to somehow ascribe it to yourself. Now, he goes even further and ascribes, it, ascribes an actual desire to yourself, an actual desire for a possible situation. I don't think you need that, but um, clearly there you have um, um, a perspective in ethics that um, requires um, empathy or first person imagining to be first personal in both of these ways. Now, um, I... Um, so, I'm now running short of time. But I've, I can see I've got 10 minutes or so. Is that right? Yeah, you can take, take 15. OK. Um, so let me just say something about the role of those, each of those two things in moral reasoning. First personal as from the inside, I described it as sort of quasi-perceptual um, uh, acquaintance with uh, morally salient what it's like facts. And of course, that's very hard to have if you've never experienced anything like it yourself. Um, but I think there's something very important about the idea that certain sorts of imagining are like perception. Um, there are, they can yield, perhaps because they involve memory of certain sorts of perception. I'm not going to speculate the philosophy of mind part here. Um, they can yield something like um, um, perception of certain facts about um, what things are like for the other person. Think of how Adam Smith described it, you know, the vivid imagining of what my brother is going through on the rack, um, it, it's almost like experiencing it firsthand. Um, 
in a perceptual way, except it's in a, as he put it, as a fainter copy of what my um, brother is experiencing. Um, why does that matter? Um, and I mentioned already that that sort of, um, it can be more motivating. Why is that? Um, one thing that interests me here is related to a topic in the philosophy of perception. Um, Mark Johnston has a paper that I like a lot, that I find interesting, called The Authority of Affect, um, where he says that, um, and I, do I have a quote from Johnston? I think I do. Um, actually, yeah, this is the second quotation. Appeal is as much a manifest quality on the face of things as shape, size, color, and motion. By the authority of affect, I mean the presence of the affect can make the desire or action especially intelligible to the agent himself. It can make the desire or act seem fitting in a way that silences any demand for justification. So we're used to the idea that perception of you know, color and shape and so forth has this role in epistemology. Once you see it this way, you can't help but um, believe certain things um, and, um, um, and it sort of, it, it, it seems to be justifying the attitudes that it produces. Um, and what he's suggesting in this paper is that appeal, that sort of, uh, if you like, um, the evaluative, it's a kind of Humean thought that, um, that values are gilding and staining the world in the way that colors are. And when, you have, when you're confronted perceptually with that kind of appeal, um, it, uh, the, the knowledge of, of what it's like seems to justify a certain attitude in a way that sort of silences um, alternative ways of thinking about it. Um, there's a lot there. I'm just suggesting that if imagination can, in this sense, mimic perception, then, um, then that, it's important that it gives something like acquaintance-style knowledge. Um, and, of course, it's important that it, is it can be deluded as well. And, um, um, so that's on the, uh, the role of the, what it's like and how that might matter to our ethics. The uh, first person was the day say. I mentioned that hair seems to involve our self-ascription of the attitudes in his very extreme version, where he's um, wanting to say that the imaginative um, acquaintance with what it's like for the other creature brings with it um, not only, uh, you know, an imagined de say self-ascription, but uh, um, uh, I ascribe to my actual self a desire. So. Um, I want to think about that some more. Obviously, that's saying much more than I have said before. Um, if you thought that, then you would think that um, there's, there's something important about the leakage, if you like, between what's, what we're imagining and what we ascribe to ourselves. I have, that's something I haven't got to the bottom of. So again, that's just, this is somewhere where I'd like some more help. Um, um, does the imaginative first personal acquaintance with my brother's situation, does it need to involve day say self-ascription? If so, does it need to be imagining myself in his situation? Does it need to be me imagining that I'm him in that situation? Um, I want to entertain the thought that it does. Um, um, there is more to think about here. Um, I mentioned the kind of leakage from in imagination uh, to the real self. Um, this is a huge topic in its own. Um, I have elsewhere talked about pseudo-empathy, which involves a kind of imagined leakage 
um, from yourself to the other. Uh, when you project too much of your own properties onto someone else, that's a kind of arrogance. Actually, Rowan Williams talks about that in his recent book on um, on empathy. And there's, a, there's leakage in the other direction, too. Um, Susan Hurley talks about how you must be careful what you pretend to be because uh, we become what we pretend to be. Uh, that's a quotation from Kurt Vonnegut that she quotes at the beginning of a really interesting paper. So, <coughs> question, does that leakage signify that it's day safe? Okay. So, I'm going to move on now to um, something that I would like some help uh, thinking through. Um, I have talked about um, the, what it's like first from the inside imagining. I've talked about um, Deisei self-ascription. Both of these come together in um, other in various stories about uh, imagination. For instance, I think Volheim's central imagining probably has both of those features. But I also want to say that quite apart from imagination, they come together in a remarkable description of the structure of consciousness which comes uh, in a different, completely different work by Mark Johnston, uh, which is called Surviving Death. I, I find that book really uh, quite interesting, though its, uh, its conclusions are very um, bizarre. But what I love is the kind of, um, it's a kind of, you know, being and nothingness for analytic philosophers. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a close examination of the phenomenology of conscious experience. And I won't read the whole thing because I'm short of time, but... Um, uh, what he describes is what, uh, something that he calls the, um, the centered arena of presence. Uh, and here at quotation five is the long description of the centered arena of presence. This is how consciousness seems. Um, um, it's perspectival. Uh, things are presented in a viewing position, bodily sensation. There's also something I haven't discussed, uh, the potential for certain acts as willed. Um, the whole centered pattern existing at a particular time and perhaps over time I call an arena of presence and action. So um, he draws here on um, Husserl and various phenomenologists, um, Heidegger actually, um, and um, wants to end up saying this whole thing is a complete illusion uh, it's, and it's a bad illusion because it's the ground of self-love. Um, we should get rid of it, and we should uh, think of ourselves in a completely different way. And when we do, well, I won't spoil it. When we do, we become immortal. There, I spoiled it. In a different way. <laughs> I'm not going to talk today about immortality, but I do want to think about that centered arena, because I think it's a wonderful description of something that has both the um, self-ascription and the uh, phenomenology. Um, and um, one important thing that he talks about is uh, the, that the center, it's a feature of the centered arena that it allows for what he calls self-alienation. Um, and I would consider that idea of self-alienation. This bit isn't in the paper, by the way, um, <laughs> but I'm interested in it. Um, self-alienation um, is our capacity to uh, imagine that I, in the sense of this perspective on the world or this arena, centered arena of consciousness, could have been looking out uh, through the window of Napoleon's eyes instead. Um, it's a, there's a kind of, um, it, if you like, illusion of contingency that I, this uh, center of consciousness, doesn't 
need to have been wedded to I conceived of as this human being. I think this is extremely tempting. I don't know if it's just because I had a very religious upbringing, but you know, you have um, um, Williams uh, discusses it. Um, when we try to imagine being Napoleon, what are we doing? Are we imagining that I am looking at, through the world, looking at the world through Napoleon's eyes? Um, this feature, this capacity of um, of the centered arena, if you like. Um, this capacity for auto-alienation um, may well be a modal illusion. Um, but what I'm interested in exploring is the idea that that modal illusion, um, far from having anything to do with the um, illusions that Johnston talks about, it's not just a... The, it's not just all about self-love and good riddance to the centered arena, as um, Johnston says. It's about... Um, um, the modal illusion, which enables us to um, imaginatively put ourselves in the um, perspective of another, um, is um, what empathy is about. So the, um, what I'm doing is imaginatively projecting myself as a centered arena into the life of another, exploiting this capacity for auto-alienation. I imagine being a self I could not possibly be. And so our capacity for this modal illusion, I want to think about this, uh, may at the same time be our capacity for knowledge of each other. Thank you.